still a part of the series of you've got questions, God's got answers. And this question is a question I get a lot, and I've gotten it online mainly when I talk to people. But this scripture bothered me when I first read it when I was seven. This passage, I'm going to show you, it, it haunted me even after I came back to God at 26, 27. And it's, there's a really good reason for it, but it goes with the question, did God force a man to burn his daughter alive? Did God force a man to burn his daughter alive? We're going to start in Judges 11. We're going to read, start reading in verse 1. It says, Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot, and a Gilead begat, and Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. And Jephthah fled from his brethren, and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there he got, were gathered vain men of Jephthah, and went out with him. So basically, Jephthah was an illegitimate child. He was the oldest child of Gilead. So he should have been essentially the one in control of the estate. He should have been the one who leads. But because he was born through an affair, he was cast out. He wasn't just not allowed to live, but he was literally forced out of the land by the sons of, of Gilead, or Gilead. Now, starting four, it says, And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of thy father's house? And why are ye come unto me now, where ye are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, and thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy word. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now I'm just going to point out real quick that Mizpah is actually the same place where Jacob and Laban um, Jacob went to Laban to try and marry his daughter, and he, Laban was a very tricky man, which was interesting because Jacob also was a tricky person in his lifetime. And Laban was constantly messing with, with Jacob and doing all kinds of trying to steal his sheep, trying to, all kinds of stuff, and God prospered him. Well, Jacob ended up trying to leave and, and get out of there, so he took his cattle, took his two wives, which are Laban's daughters, and you know, the portion that was allotted to him and tried to leave, just go home to his father. 
Laban went ahead and overtook him and said, basically, that, you know, he, you're stealing my stuff. And Jacob explained to him, listen, I've done everything right. God blessed me. You know, you're being, you're doing evil. So let's just agree to, to separate. So basically, Mizpah is an interesting little combo here because Mizpah is the place where Jacob, who is Israel, received the allotment that would set up his family to become the nation of Israel. And it was heard at Mizpah, which, which is watchtower, which is before God, meaning God bared witness to this. So God signed on to this, said, yep, this is what's going to happen. Well, it's interesting because in this case, Jephthah had, been, had had his inheritance stripped from him. But in, the, in this place is where he actually made a, a covenant to get his inheritance back. And to not just get it back, but to essentially make himself a new, a new line. Because he wasn't going to be considered of his father, he was going to be considered the head of all of, Gile, of Gilead. So he's essentially starting a new line with him and his family to do this. So this is essentially it's like a second, it's, it's an interesting little tie-in because it's the second time where the inheritance is going to come before in this time for Jephthah. Now we're going to skip ahead because this is really interesting if you ever want to read it, this next part. But it's just a little bit long and intensive and it, talk, and it goes over the whole exodus basically. But Jephthah tries to deal with the king of Ammon and tell him, hey listen, we don't want to fight you guys, just go away. And they said, no, we're not going to go away, we're going to fight. So we're going to start, we're going to pick up in the 28th verse. And it says, Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah, which he had sent him. They had sent a messenger back and forth. Then the Spirit of the Lord came into Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall I surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into the, his hands. And he smote them, from Oror, from Oror, even till thou come to Mineth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards, with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dance. And when she was his only child, beside her, he had no son, neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which thou proceedest out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord has taken vengeance for thee, on thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. 
Let me alone two months that I may go up and down in the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months, she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man, and it was custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament for the daughter of Jephthah, that Giladite, four days in a year. Now, many a study Bible, many uh, commentaries, even at my one at the church I grew up in, they would preach that Jephthah burned his daughter because he said he would give a burnt offering. That's what it says. They just try to they will jump through all kinds of hoops trying to make that fit. And it sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, we just read it. There are entire books written about this by atheists who use this as an argument as to why God of the Bible is barbaric. There are even books by Christians trying to justify it, trying to make it like it's okay because he made a bad vow. But I, I can say, this is where I get mad at a lot of preachers, is because they just repeat what they're told. They don't repeat what is, they just repeat what they're told. Just because, and I, and I feel that way because this doesn't say that. It simply doesn't say that he burned her alive. Where does it say he burned her alive? Oh, in verse 31, it says, in verse 31 it says, Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I am returned in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. You can say, well, there it is. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to show you that God didn't de demand a fire. God didn't demand things to be burnt up just because he wanted to be burnt up. There's a reason behind everything God does. If you go through the book of Leviticus and you read the book of Leviticus, it gives you all kinds of laws, all kinds of rules, all kinds of things for what they're supposed to do for these offerings. God was feeding the Levites with these offerings. And the Levites didn't have they didn't have an inheritance. They didn't have a land. They were eat, they were set up in camps in the other 12 tribes. And because they didn't have their own land, they didn't own land. They weren't allowed to own land. They were only allowed to be priests. Well, how are you going to live when you're in the middle of a desert where you need to be able to do agriculture to live and you don't have anything? By the charity of others. Not only that, it was their sole responsibility to take care of widows and orphans. That was how the people got fed. That was how widows and orphans got fed. Let's go to 1 Samuel 2. Because I'm going to prove that like I do everything. And the Bible proves itself out. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to go to the 14th verse. And it says, It's talking about Eli's sons. 
We'll start at 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Baal, which means worthless. It's a worthless God. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with the flesh hook, meaning with the pitchfork, of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. So what does it say? The way they did the... If you read in Leviticus, what they're doing is they're taking... And they say, okay, you need to bring a, a ram. They take it and they slaughter it. Then they cut the legs off and they take the innards out. They wash it in a boiling pot and they put that on the fire. It says put the innards the fatlings, and onto the fire and burn them up because that's the bad part. God doesn't want you eating that. And then they take the meat, they boil it, they take a pitchfork, they go, and they pull it up. Whatever stays on the fork is what they get to eat for the rest of the week or month. And take that home to their family. Everything that they don't get, the bones, everything else gets thrown on the fire and finishes up burning. God was using this to feed the people. And not just that, it was also used again because the Levites' job was to feed widows and orphans. Because one of the worst things you could be if you're living in a deep desert-dwelling society is to be a widow. Because who you, you even if you can work the land for the most part, it's tough because it's tough to own land. You're not really allowed to at the time as a woman. You need people to deal with. You need people to... to, to the plow, who's going to move the... You need sons, you need a husband, you need somebody to take care of you. If you're a widow to where you're by yourself, not having somebody means death. How does God take care of you? God puts provision out there. He put the Levites in charge of it. This is your job. That's why they didn't do it themselves, is because their job was to go around and make sure all the widows and orphans. Why do we know that? That's the reason why in, in Acts 2 they set up the church the way we have it now. That's the reason why they, they took and they said, well, we need deacons. Well, what does deacon mean? It means somebody who sweeps tables and waits on tables. Why? Because when, as the people heard that the Jewish people were becoming Christians, the, to get back at them, the Jews stopped feeding the widows who they thought were either speaking Greek or might have converted. And so the disciples got together and said, well, we need to feed these people because obviously the temple's not doing it now. It's always been, it's always been the job of the church and of the temple to take care of the destitute, to take care of the widows, to take care of the fatherless. That's been, that's the purpose. That's why God established an institution. If God dwells within you and you have a Bible, why do you need a church? What's good is the church? The church is here to reach into the community and take care of people who have a hard time taking care of themselves. That's the purpose of the church. It's where a body of believers come so they can work in the service of God to take care of those who need it. Because what does God love more than, than praise and worship? He loves people, and he loves the lowest of the low. 
Jesus said, those who are at the bottom will be brought to the top in heaven. Those who are afflicted here will be praised in heaven. The servant here will be brought up in heaven. That is how the economy of God works. If you want to be the greatest in heaven, be the lowest on earth. If you want to be the lowest in heaven, be the greatest on earth. It's, it's up to us. That's what the church is for. And again, just continuing to prove this, second, I'm going to show you what the offerings were for. We're going to go to Leviticus 2. Leviticus 2. So in the part where it tells us all about the offerings, we're going to go to Leviticus and read in Leviticus. And there's more that deals with this whole thing. But Leviticus 2, the king of the Bible, it says in verse 1, And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and they shall pour oil upon it and put fragrances thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take thereof with handful of the flour thereof and the oil thereof with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial the, of it upon the altar and to an offering be made by fire a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord's made by fire. Now it says, And if thou bring an, ob an oblation of a meat offering, bacon in the oven. So this is when it's saying meat offering, it's actually meaning bread or, or meal. Bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And if thy oblation, oblation be a meat offering, bacon in a pan, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mingled with oil. Thou shalt part it in pieces and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. And it keeps going on. And then, if you, there's other places. Leviticus, it goes on about how that if you're going to the temple and you don't have an offering, you can buy, if you have the money, you can buy a cow, a, a, you know, an ox, you can buy a goat, whatever you want. If you don't have money for that, you can buy a pigeon. If you don't have money for that, you can bring an omer of, of barley. And if you don't have that, you can pray. God, these are sin offerings. And God's saying, giving, just saying, listen, like this, you can give meat. If you don't have meat, you can bring cake. You can bring cakes. If you don't have stuff for cakes, you can bring wafers. You don't have wafers, you can bring unleavened bread. You ever, why? God doesn't care what they're doing there with it. He's feeding the people with it. It's the reason why in Malachi 3, God says, you are, you are depriving me of my tithes and offerings. My storehouses are empty. What's a storehouse? It's a grain elevator. He's saying the people are going hungry because the grain is empty because you're not giving me what you should be giving me. What is that? Why is God upset about that? Because they're not taking care. How can you take care of the widows and the orphans if there's no, nothing to feed them with? So the offerings were used by the temples to keep the people alive, healthy, living, 
Now, <laughs> a lot of people will immediately go off and say, though, that, you know, that, yeah, but it does say that he offered up for an offering, you know, and it, well, let's read what it says. Just read what it says. I said, 30 and 37. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go up and down. Judges 11, 37. Go up and down the mountain and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, that he vowed, and she knew no man. That was the, that was the vow. She knew no man. She didn't die. So she knew, that. what was she worried about? She wasn't going to have children. She wasn't going to be allowed to have children. Why? Because the term that we use for a burnt offering means to be utterly consumed by God, basically. It's by fire, but utterly consumed. Oddly enough, it translates in Latin as holocausto, the holocaust, the Jewish people. Why they use the term holocaust for the Jewish people that was going on with the Nazis? Because they can't find the bodies. Why? Because they burnt it all in an oven. So it was totally consumed by fire. Therefore, it was a holocaust. So, if God totally consumes this girl, he's putting her in service of God. He's taking, what did it say when it said, it said the servant of the priest takes a pitchfork, throws it in, and pulls it out. Did it say the priest did? The servant. Who are these servants? They're people who are dedicated in service to the priests. And so what did he do? He had to dedicate his daughter in service to the priest. And when you do this, it's giving up the child. The child is no longer yours. The child is God's. So guess what? The, what the purpose of this, the purpose of this is that at the beginning, he had lost his inheritance. He said, I'll do this thing for you. I'll conquer this for you. If you will let me establish my own line through my generations, and, and, and they will rule Gilead, not my father's lineage, my own, I'll start my own line. And then what did he do? In a moment of weakness and doubt, he said, God, I'll do anything you ask. I'll, I'll, I'll give away anything. I'll burn any offering. I'll do whatever I got to do if you'll just give me victory. So in the moments before doing it, he gave up his own daughter, essentially, which was the only way he could have possibly kept a line going because he had no son. And he had no other daughters. So she was the only way his line could have started. So sure, he was the head of Gilead for one generation. And then he died and his line was cut off with him. Why? Because he was selfish. Because he didn't, believe, he didn't trust God. Because he didn't trust God that God gave them that land. God would keep them in that land. He didn't trust it. He had to go a little further. You know what, God? I'll do anything. I'll do anything if you want me. He doubted God. And therefore, the very thing he was fighting for, he had already basically sacrificed beforehand in a moment of weakness. This, 
And just to prove this out again, because, because again, I had somebody say, they didn't do that. They didn't have people in children in service of the temple. Let's go to Samuel. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 1. I just want to show this just in case you say this and he goes, you're lying. It says, in the first verse, Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zelphamim, of Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkaniah, the son of Jerom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tobu, the son of Zoth, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Pinnah. And Pinnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of the city yearly to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkaniah offered, he gave to Peniah his wife, unto all her sons and daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, she was provoked, she, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept. And did not eat. Then said Elkaniah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. When she was, when she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore, and she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the afflictions of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall be no razor upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she was drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thine wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count, on, count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thy handmaid find grace in thine sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the early morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkaniah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked the Lord of him, asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkaniah, in all his house, went up to offer unto the Lord a yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, 
and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. So basically, he weaned her till she, he, she weaned him until he was about seven years old, so that she could keep him around as long as possible. Why? Because once they brought him, he was going to be God's. And what did Samuel do? He actually slept in between the altar and the Holy of Holies. And Samuel was Eli, as if he was Eli's son. He was Eli's servant. So, what do we see? They did, in fact, take children, young people, and use them in service of the Lord. Hannah said, I will give them right back to you. Of course, she was like, well, I'm going to keep them as long as I can. But she did. So we have proof in the Bible that children were in fact given to service of the Lord and they were no longer as the children of that mother. They were gods at that point. So when, when he said, I will give you whatever, he meant his daughter has to go be gods. She's not allowed to bear children. She's not allowed. She is working for God now. She is as if she's not his child. So now he has no offspring. So like I said, his lineage stops with him. Why? Because he was foolish. Because he was foolish. Which goes the title of my sermon. Sacrificing your children for momentary gain. We do this all the time. Society does it as a whole, whether it's somebody who their children has to grow up watching their parents drunk or high or doing drugs I know a guy. I know a guy who actually watched his mother OD on pills when she when he was eleven years old. Literally sat there and she took the pills and watched the whole thing happen. That's sacrificing his future for her momentary gain. The thing is, though, this is not just the world. The church does this also. We get into our concepts where we say, we have to do This is what I feel comfortable doing. And so I won't change for the children. It doesn't matter the children are going away. I'm not going to speak to them on the level that they care about. We have people that we've, we've had. We have had movements and revivals in this country since before it was founded. They had revivals in the 1700s and the 1800s. They had three of them. They had revival in the early 1900s, in 1917. They did the hippie movement, the, the, the Jesus movement. That Basically, Billy Graham and those his like ushered that in. They got people so used to hearing about the Bible daily and daily that even the hippie movement, which was about free love and not do anything, they said, hey, give me Jesus, man. And they started the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And people were getting saved all over the place. And then what happened? Those very same people said, yeah, but I don't want to have to give up anything that I like. I don't want to have to be uncomfortable. I don't want to. So they stayed within themselves. And next thing, what do you know? Another generation passes. And that, that, that birth of a movement that started with them ends with them. It went one generation. It stopped. It started with them and it ended. Why? Because from the very beginning, they were selfish. And they said, I'm going to do what makes me feel good. I'm going to make, do what makes me feel comfortable. I'm going to do what I like. I'm not going to worry about if I'm speaking over people's heads or under people. Or I'm addressing, I'm only addressing, they're going to churches. They'll only address married people. As if single people are not really Christian or something. You'll go to places where all they talk about is 
whatever sin happens to be there, the one they hate the most. And what is the society outside me? Societies are different. Some children, they want to hear. Some youth, millennials, whatever they are, even my children, we're talking 45 and under because there were kids 45 and under who grew up in a culture where their parents went to church, but it wasn't really that important. And so it's not really that important to them. So they're not really teaching their children. It's, it's this whole thing where we want, and where it's natural for us, we want to feel comfortable. We want to be okay with it. But if we're only worried about preaching on the topics we care about and we that make us feel good, we're only preaching against the sins that we happen to hate, not the sins that we do ourselves. We only worry about doing the events or the, the community of things that we are worried about, that it will stop with us. Even if we ignite a, revolu a revolution, even if we ignite a revival, it will end in one generation like it always has. Why? Because we, as a church, sacrifice our children for momentary pleasure, for the momentary gain, the gain of feeling like we're in a community. Oh, isn't it so great that we all get to experience the things we like? Yes. Let the world go by. No. No. We need to get out there, and we need to get people in, and if we can't get people in, then we need to go out to them. We need to do things that make us feel uncomfortable. My grandfather used to say, nothing great has ever happened inside your comfort zone. No one's ever done anything great inside their comfort zone. It's only been when you put yourself out. When there's a chance for failure, that's the only thing you can do something worth mentioning. The only people we talk about in history are people who get, had a chance to fail. Heck, George Washington. Many people, oh, great general. He lost every battle he ever did except one. I mean, he had to, we have pictures of him crossing the Delaware and he's standing on the boat. They laid down and covered themselves and paddled out on the Christmas Eve. Why? Because they would have been shot if they would have went over standing up. Why? Because they lost the battle. But he was smart enough that he knew we're on a big continent. They have to keep sending troops. We can lose all the battles. We'll win the war eventually. It'll become a war of attrition for them. It just, it'll just, the casualties will pile up. The expense will pile up. It eventually nearly bankrupted the entire country of, of England. That's the only reason why America rose is because England wasn't powerful as much anymore. Why? That's why they came back at the War of 1812. They said, we put everything into that country trying to stop them, and we still lost. There are times you in life, why do people, it's this thing, it's called failing up. Failing up. I know people that fail up. Started a business, failed. Somehow, ended up better for it. He gets another job. Runs that one into the ground. Somehow he's better for it. Does this thing. Fails. Why? He's taking risks. He knows he's calculating them. He knows that he can keep failing. He can lose every battle. But eventually the war will be won. If we chart ourselves, we chart ourselves to where that it doesn't matter whether we can. And this, I'm going to use this another thing. And who's ever here has ever heard of a dead reckoning? It's a nautical term. It's when a reckoning is when you align your, your ship with north, true north. You find the north star, you do it, and you decide where you're going to go, and you align yourself. 
A dead reckoning is when you can't see the stars, and you just guess. Columbus sailed across the Atlantic using dead reckoning. He had no idea. He looked up. He couldn't see the stars half the time. So he just aligned himself and said, that's where we're going. And they went. It's a dead wreck. Sometimes you just have to align yourself by the only thing we have. And don't worry about if people like it, if it offends people, if it offends. If you're preaching the truth, it's going to offend somebody. Whether they're in the church or out of the church, it's going to offend somebody. And probably in the church before the person out of the church. So align yourself and do a dead reckoning. Just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. We know what we need to do. We know we have the perfect example in Christ who who ate with the tax collectors and and the prostitutes, who went to a, (laughs) who they said, oh, your friend died. And he said, okay, (laughs) to to steal from a meme. They said, your friend's dead. And he said, "Uh, hold my water bottle. I went over and raised him back up from the dead. He didn't take no for an answer. Why? Because he didn't care what the people around him thought. We re- preached today in, in, this, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. What did Jesus do? He goes on and on and on. And he was, he, he's getting in their faces. You scribes, you Pharisees, you're vipers, you're, you're, you're snakes, yeah. you're hypocrites. He's getting right at them. Why? Because telling the truth hurts sometimes. Telling the truth is going to get you pinned to a cross sometimes. <laughs> But at the same time, it's going to ignite a fire that, in this case, revolutionized the world. But don't let it end with us. Peter, the apostles, Paul, it was scary. It was scary going out into this big world where everybody doesn't like you. Don't let that stop you. Don't let it stop us. Let's do what we have to do. Let's align ourselves with Christ, and then let's just go forward from there. May all of us stop sacrificing the future so that we can have a momentary pleasure. Let's pray today for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, for this time, for this people. Thank you for this book. May you be with everyone as we move forward and as we go out into the world, that we will be ambassadors for you. May you work on the hearts of everybody here, that as we continue to move forward, that you will just fill us with love, with understanding, with patience with mercy and kindness, that we will see a hurting world and we will not feel disdain for them, but we will feel love and mercy. May you fill us more and more each day with you, and may we get closer to you. As you guide and direct these people as we go forth, as we all of this in the holy and precious name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.